This week on Q&A, Saudi Arabian women's rights activist Manal Al-Sharif. She talks about her book, Daring to Drive, A Saudi Woman's Awakening. Manal Al-Sharif, you have a book called Daring to Drive. Why did you write this? Why? Mm, tough question. I never thought of writing a book. When I started the movement, I gave a speech. I was invited to give a speech. People cried in that speech. People gave me uh, two standing ovations. This never happened in the history of that conference. When I came down the stage, this lady came to me and she said, when we are going to read your story? And I thought, who would ever be interested in reading about my insignificant life? But that really sparked the idea of writing this book. When was that? I gave the speech in 2012, and that's when I started writing it. Where did you give this speech and why? It was also Freedom Forum, and it's uh, hosted by Human Rights Foundation. It's based in New York, and they invite activists from all around the world to tell their stories of standing against tyranny, standing uh, and fighting for uh, human rights. That was in Oslo. Let's start from the beginning. <clears throat> Where were you born? I'm born in Mecca in the year of trouble, I call it, which is 1979. Your parents, what are they like? Where were they born? Yes, mom, mom, she's from Libya. That's North Africa. She met dad because of faith. She came for Hajj and she met my father in Mecca. They fell in love, they got married. My father is from Mecca. And what's Hajj? Oh, Hajj is, um, so once in a lifetime for the Muslim who is able, he's required to perform Hajj, which is visiting the holy site of Mecca and performing certain rituals, and that will make your faith complete. Picture on our screen right now of yes, what? What is that? That's my hometown, Mecca. This is the Holy Kaaba. Uh, one of the rituals, we performed tawaf, seven circles around this Holy Kaaba. I miss Mecca. And, and, and who can go there, and why do they go there, and how important is it? Um, so the Kaaba or, or Mecca is for Muslims only, so non-Muslims are not allowed to visit uh, Mecca or Medina, the two, holiest, the, the two holiest cities for the Muslims. And uh, so only Muslims go there. We go either to perform Hajj once in a lifetime, or you can go for a visit which is called Umrah. Umrah is a small version of Hajj that you can do any time of the year. And it literally means visit, to visit the holy site of Mecca. Do you have any idea how many people have died there at the Hajj or in Mecca or around this Kaaba? Died? For what? Died for Stampedes. What? Over the years we've read about them yes. <clears throat> where there's so many people there that uh, you might have thousands of people die. It, it didn't happen many times, really. Uh, it happened few times for... Uh, some reasons that they explained why the last, the last, uh, ha the, not the last Hajj, I can't remember the last ten beats that happened, which are over a thousand died, but it's not really often. It, security there is very strict, and they always have these uh, hundreds of thousands of people organizing the Hajj for the Muslim to make it smooth. I did Hajj myself as a Muslim. As a devout Muslim, you have to do it once in your lifetime. And it was very smooth. So accidents happen in big gatherings. When you talk about a million Muslim in a very small city the size of Mecca between mountains, it's a valley between mountains, accidents does happen, yes. What do Muslims get out of going there? What's the purpose? So in Islam, you have five pillars of Islam. 
and to be full Muslims you have to fulfill these five pillars the fifth pillar in Islam so the first pillar for example is to believe in God there is no no God but Allah and Prophet is his and Muhammad is his prophet peace be upon him and the last pillar of Islam is performing Hajj this is why Muslims go to Mecca to uh, have the full faith to become full Muslims I would say how long do you spend there uh, for Hajj, uh, so for Hajj, it depends on how long you want to spend there. But for the Hajj days itself, you don't have to be there more than a week. But people like to spend more time in Mecca. Who pays for it? Uh, you pay for it. Everyone pays for himself. And um, we believe that if you pray, so when we pray, God accepts our prayers. But in Mecca, each prayer you make, it's worth 100,000. This is why it's very uh, important for the Muslims to go there. It's like... Uh, you can pray one year, and if you go to Mecca, you stay there one week. The the deeds you get from Mecca, being in Mecca, praying in Mecca, it's worth years of your lifetime. In your book, now, <clears throat> the one thing I, I read your book, and I'm not sure, maybe I missed it, but what would you say your Muslim faith is today? Uh, me? Yeah. I'm Muslim. Do you believe? I, of course I believe in God. I believe the Prophet Muhammad. I'm just against the radical Islam. I'm against the orthodox Islam that's been taught to us in schools growing up. One of the things that's in your book, every time the Prophet is mentioned, yes. is, are the initials P-B-U-H. And if you just said it, why do you do that every time you talk about Prophet Muhammad? Uh, it's a sign of respect to Prophet Muhammad that when you mention his name, and it's not only for Prophet Muhammad, by the way. So if I mention the name of any Prophet, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, we have to mention peace be upon him. It's asking blessings from God to them for giving us, uh, for leading humankind to the faith, to God, to the truth. What's the most important thing to you about being a Muslim? Uh, a lot of things. But um, I think the peace that you get being a Muslim, uh, the peace that you get believing in God. And um, it's interesting that people have this misconception, misconception about Islam that it's uh, the ideology of hate that we see today and the violence. It's not, Islam itself means uh, submission to God. And the first thing when you meet a Muslim, they say, peace be upon you. So it's, a, it's peaceful. It calls for morals. It calls for good deeds. It calls for a lot of uh, good things in any society that they want to have there. What we lost from Islam is the, the preaching and the scholars. They are emphasizing on trivial things that made us lose the sense of Islam, which is being in peace with yourself, being in peace with the other, accepting mercy we lost we lost that i don't know some way in the when it became political when it was used as a political weapon when did that start oh throughout history religion always <clears throat> been used uh, whether islam whether any other religion been used as a political weapon in europe the inquisitions and the muslim world when you use one faith against the other and you call them infidel any ideology actually used to gain power uh, that's when it becomes dangerous. Where do you live now? Uh, so I used to live in Saudi. I moved to Dubai. I lived five years. Two, uh, few, like only two months. Uh, we moved to Sydney, Australia. And that's where you live now? Yes, that's where I live now. Are you married? 
I am married through my, my, with my second husband, who's from Brazil, and we have a boy. And your first marriage ended in divorce. And yes. how old is your the young man that you had the boy? Abdullah, my son, my first son. Yeah. Abdullah is uh, right now he's eleven, and my second boy he will turn three next month. Why did you pick Australia? Oh, long story short, my husband is working there now, but he didn't want to go back to Brazil because it's violent, and he wanted to go to a country where he can um, have better life for our kids, for Daniel. You tell us in your book a lot about your divorce. Yeah. Okay. Why? Um, not a lot. Did I talk a lot in the book about the divorce? Enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just talked about because it was so difficult for a woman to get divorced uh, because she's not supposed to. I didn't get support from the family. They were against it. Although I explained it's an abusive uh, relationship. And the Saudi courts is not uh, a friendly place to women, really. It's thrown out from the society, from the court, from the legal system for a woman to get divorced. It's really difficult. But for me, when I got divorced, it was kind of liberating when I, I, I left my ex-husband. You talked about how you met your husband from in the first place and another relationship you were interested in that didn't develop. Give us that, and when did that all happen? Uh, you mean my first husband relationship? No, well, you're a man you were interested in before you met your husband. I mean, you, you talk about your personal life and all that, but when, when, what year did all that happen? Actually, my first husband was my first love. I wasn't interested in any men before. I had crushes on men. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yes. <laughs> so I grew up in a society where men and women are isolated. My own cousins, I cannot see them. When once I, I got my period, once I reach, once the girl reached puberty, she is not allowed to to see men. So the only men I see in my life is my father and my brother. The first time I see a man or I interact with a man who's different than my father and my brother was when I got my first summer job. I was 23, and I remember 22 actually, and I remember it was interesting to see. Um, um, to find that I can work with all these men and talk to them for the first time in my life. After reaching uh, uh, property, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, um, I got so many crushes, actually, but it would last for a week and leave. And it makes sense later on for me because I was not allowed to be introduced to the men world, to know how they talk, how they, what they think of, to even just talk to them. So you create this... Uh, I would say bizarre situations that leads to bizarre feelings. So what are the rules and where do the rules come from on how a woman lives in Saudi Arabia? Uh, so the first rule for a woman is her best place is her home. Not her job, not education, not the mosque, not outside, is her home. So it's highly encouraged for us to stay home. and. If I ever want to leave the house, it should be for urgency. It should be for something really, really uh, important. And I have to take the man permission to leave the house. My, my husband, my father. Um, also, the segregation between the sexes. And you find it in all and everywhere. If you go to a restaurant, if you go to the, a bank, if you go to a um, government office, there are always the men and women are segregated. Um, the schools, the, high, the university. When I went to university, I've never seen my teachers. All of them were, uh, most of them actually, were men. I've never talked to them. I see them through closed uh, circuit TV, CCTV. This is how I used to see my teachers. We were not even allowed to talk to them. 
We had a, a teacher in the class. She would call them if we have a question, and she asked this question on our behalf. So it's, it, this is how you grow up. Also, the list of things you cannot do, just being a woman, were really huge. Um, you cannot dress anything in public, but you have to put on the abaya. It was expected in my city, because it was a very conservative city, Mecca, to cover my face, not to talk to men. Uh, it wasn't encouraged to use our first names. So at the end of the school, when they would call my if my father is outside, I'm not allowed to be standing outside. They have to call me through the, the mic, the, the guard, the security guard. He calls through the mic or the gatekeeper. He calls my father's name. He doesn't call my name. And um, uh, the list goes on and on. To Let me interrupt just yeah. saying to show a picture. Yes. <clears throat> we have two still photographs I want to show you yes. and have you explain it. This is the first one. Yes, this is us in Saudi Arabia. But actually, they're showing their hands. They're showing their feet. It's, things are different now. We were fully covered, and we have to put on the abaya, the one on, in, in Mecca, at least, in my city, because it's very conservative. Uh, What's the difference between what we're looking at there and the abaya? Yes, so these, this is the millennia. This is a new generation. They, they don't accept to cover their face. And now they're wearing colorful abayas, which was something that thrown at. You can never wear a cover. When I worked in Aramco in the eastern province, I insisted on wearing uh, colorful scarves. And I was totally um, different than everyone else. But now more and more girls even wear the colorful abaya, and I hope things loosen up. They are pushing the rules to be able to choose the, the clothes they want, the decent or the modest uh, clothes they want as a Muslim, but it shouldn't be abaya, it shouldn't be black. How much of what Saudi Arabia requires of women is because of the prophet laid down these laws years ago? How much from... Is it from the Prophet or is this created by the kingdom right now, their own rules? Uh, okay, there are rules from Prophet Muhammad for sure, but it's all about the interpretation of these texts that comes from Prophet Muhammad. So there are, as I explained, for example, the five pillars of Islam that we follow. But there are rules that is imposed that are not meeting the 2017, the 21st century. One of them, I'll just give you one example. At the time of Prophet Muhammad, they expect the woman when she travels, she has a man companion. Makes sense because it was very dangerous when you travel. There will be thieves, there will be killers um, on the this deserts, and you're using caravans, camels. It takes days. No, you don't need that. You don't need a guy to travel with me to protect me. He's not going to carry a gun and protect me. So uh, the rules, when they are taken from textbooks, that's 1,000 or 1,400 years ago, it should be reinterpreted to meet the current situation. That's the problem we face with the scholars in Islam when they say, you cannot interpret it anyway, but it should be done exactly the same way it was done in Prophet Muhammad time. For example, uh, cutting hands. You cannot tell me now you have correctional uh, facilities and we still cut hands. And this, is, this, this, um, this debate has been going on with the scholars. I'm not a scholar, but it, it terrifies me when they still insist that we cut hands. Have you ever known anybody that had their hands cut off? The who? Their hands cut off? I've known someone. Have you known somebody? No, I've ha I haven't known, but it, it was carried out in Saudi Arabia. I, I've ha I, haven't, I haven't heard about it recently, but it has been carried out in Saudi Arabia. What if you announce yourself or they find out you're a homosexual? What happens? 
oh, you get killed in Saudi Arabia. Killed? Yeah, you cannot announce that you're homosexual in Saudi Arabia. Uh, religion is very, I try to stay away from religion because I'm in peace with every single different faith and belief and sexual orientation. But if I mention these things in my country, it's thrown at. You cannot discuss homosexuality in my country, for example. It's, it's something that's a taboo that we cannot talk about in Saudi Arabia. So I keep these beliefs to myself and I try to push the things without offending the believers, I would say. The things that I believe should change in my country and has no base in Islam that you're pushing it on, a, on us. Would you explain, and you mentioned this <clears throat> about your mother and father and your sister and teachers and others that beat you yeah. as you were growing up. When when you say beat you yes. and your ex-husband, yes. what does that mean? What, what did they, when somebody, and, and define beating. Um, so growing up, my generation uh, was expected to discipline your kids uh, with a stick. We call it bamboo stick or khizarana. Uh, it, it was expected in the school that if you don't uh, behave, you also are disciplined with a, a wooden roller. So we were brought up this way. So mom and dad would discipline in the house if, we th if they think uh, we misbehave. And the same thing happens in the school. One boy was killed because his teacher beat him badly. And then they had to ban the beating in school. But the beating in the houses, it was not criminalized until recently. Uh, there was anti-domestic violence law that was passed recently. It's not enforced yet, but it's a good start to uh, to stop this, I would say, culture of that you can discipline someone by beating them. The physical abuse, I would call it. Who beat you the most in your lifetime? My sister. <laughs> she beat me the most. That's who, the interesting thing. Who beat you the, the, where it was the most severe beating? And I mean, I'm kind of leading up to whether or not that was your ex-husband you no, refer to him as K. I, 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 ha I had my, my share of beating growing up in Saudi Arabia and that would ended actually my marriage that I, when I left my it was because of the physical abuse not only the emotional abuse how would what would what would his physical abuse be like uh, physical abuse with the hand with the hands yes, punching and did you have any place to go when your ex-husband was punching you and all that? Did in Saudi Arabia, if a woman go to the police and she reports the man, they would summon him, they would ask him to sign, they would not put him in jail, even if she has a medical report, they would summon him and he have to sign a pledge promising not to uh, beat her again. The problem, she gets sent to the same abuser house. And this is the case of Maryam Al-Utabi, she's a girl who's 29 years old. She was beaten, she complained. Her against her brother, who's younger than her, her father complains against her to drop the charges, and she was sent to jail, not her brother. The social media went into frenzy. They let the girl out. Six months later, she's living in an abusive house. She finds a job. She leaves the house. They put her back in jail for the crime of being absent from her abuser's house. So that's a problem that we don't have. Even if there is shelters for women in Saudi Arabia, it's poorly, poorly, poorly uh, uh, managed because they treat those abused women and victims as criminals. They lock them in those houses. And for a woman to leave the shelter, she needs the guardian, who is her abuser, to sign the papers so she leaves the shelter or jail, let's say. 
There is also the, the story of uh, Dina Ali Lesloom, who ran away from her abused, abusing, uh, abusive uh, family. They caught her in Manila. She was on the way to Australia for asylum. They caught her in Manila, and they sent her back, handcuffed, duct tape in her mouth. And she's in jail. She's in a correctional facility for women under 30. This is what happened to the abused women in my country. I want to play for you uh, an interview that I did <clears throat> here in 2006 with Turkey Al Faisal, yes. who at the time was the ambassador from Saudi Arabia to the United States. And we talked about women in the Saudi society. It's not very long, about 40 minutes, okay. 40 seconds. The most prized woman today in Saudi Arabia is a woman with a job. Uh, she is encouraged by her parents to, to go and find a job uh, because she brings an in income and they don't have to spend money on her. Uh, her siblings look up to her and want to do like her. And equally importantly, she is sought after by suitors. And I think this is, this is what is going to happen to women driving, to people going to, to common uh, uh, events uh, together. Because social change is, is what will, uh, what will uh, drive the, these factors. So what do you think of what he said? That was 11 years ago. Wow, is it? Oh Where were God. you 11 years ago? Uh, I was working in Aramco. Aramco? Yes. Yeah. So what do you think of what? I agree that social change is the one that will lead change in Saudi Arabia that um, I always, and this is the beautiful thing about Saudi Arabia, by the way, the government invests so much in women education. I get free education. I got free education. I went to computer science college, and women are sent now abroad to study for their master's degree, PhD, and even bachelor's degree, fully covered by the government. They invest a lot in our education. Our problem is the frustration when I go back home or when I finish my education and I don't find a job. Because there are, we are only 14%. It was 11% uh, like two or three years ago. Now we're 14% only for, of the workforce. And we're highly educated women, half of the society, but we can't find jobs. And I believe a woman can reach her full potential, cannot reach her full potential, unless she gets a good education and she is financially independent from the man. So she can really own her life and own her decisions. And I do agree, uh, educated working woman is what Saudi Arabia needs today. I want to show you some video, it's old <clears throat> video of Aramco, and then I want you to explain what Aramco is. It's, this is an, another short clip just to give you a sense of what it looks like. His Majesty Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud, King of Saudi Arabia. He had faith that somewhere within these far-reaching sands was the key to a richer life for the Saudi Arabs who so long had known scarcity and want. Perhaps this country, so unproductive on the surface, might contain minerals below the surface, including oil. On May 29, 1933, after weeks of discussions, there was a meeting at Qasim Palace on the outskirts of Jeddah. It was there that Saudi Arab government officials representing His Majesty signed a concession covering roughly 320,000 square miles. This was the starting point of a new American business venture abroad. Reportedly, that company, Aramco, is worth between $1 and $10 trillion. Nobody knows for sure. They no don't publish yes. it. What is Aramco? Aramco is, uh, right now, the name, it used to be the, American, the Arabian American Oil Company. 
the government in the 80s and the 70s, they bought the, all the shares. It became fully owned by the Saudi government. And now it's known as the Arabian Oil Company. That's Aramco. And Aramco is in charge of producing oil, all the oil field under the control of Aramco. They they're the largest, we used to be until 2015, I think. We used to be the largest producer of oil in the world until America took over. That's Aramco. It started by Americans. Now it's fully uh, owned by Saudis. But it did inherit, I would say, the discrimination laws against women from the Americans. And it was not changed in the last 80 years. And the company started in 33. Actually, 30, yeah, 33. So are you blaming America for the discrimination against women? It went, this is an interesting thing. When the company started, and I know women who worked in Aramco before it was owned by the Saudis, there were a lot of discriminative laws by our Americans in Aramco against women in this company. That's interesting. The Saudis inherited it and equipped it, I think. Um, maybe they created their own rules. I don't know really the history. It's a very secretive com company. They try to keep very low profile. They don't like bad publicity. And they're going public next year. They like only to say, um, to keep their low profile. But in my book, there is a whole chapter where I bring up a lot of policies that are unjust and discriminating against me for being not only a woman, but also for being a Saudi woman working in Aramco. So when you were working at Aramco, what were the years? I worked, I joined them in 2002, uh, and I uh, quit my job in 2012. And it was the only place for me. We were 60 girls graduating from computer science in King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah. We were only two girls from that whole 60 class, 60 girls class, got jobs. I was very lucky to uh, get a job with Aramco because for me at that time, 2002, there were no jobs for me to work anywhere. What was the difference between living in the Aramco compound? compound and living in the rest of Saudi Arabia. So when I joined Aramco 2002, unfortunately, as a Saudi woman, not as a woman can live in the compound, but as a Saudi woman, I was not allowed to live in the compound. And I was not allowed to live in a, in a, in a uh, uh, I was not allowed even to rent an apartment outside the compound, because the government won't allow me to rent an apartment as a woman. I was not even allowed to stay in a hotel room, because the government also wouldn't allow me to rent a hotel room without a mahram, a man. It was uh, uh, up to 2007, out of policy, the company allowed women to live in the compound. That's when I got my divorce. When I found a place to stay, I left my marriage. And that's when I, uh, things started really changing um, in starting 2007 and 2008 in the company. By the way, where is this your son from the first marriage? He's in Saudi Arabia with his grandmother. Not with his father? No, not with his father. He took him from me after I got married again, and he's living with his grandmother. When can you see him? I always go and see him. I always go and visit him because he, lived in the, he lives in the grandmother house. She's more of my own mother, too. So you can go in and out of Saudi Arabia even yes. though you're not living there anymore? No, I wish I can move back to Saudi Arabia, but my second marriage is not approved and not recognized by the government. For me as a Saudi to marry non-Saudi, if I'm a man or a woman, the rule applies to both, I need a special permission from the Minister of Interior, which they wouldn't grant me until now. And I know it's because uh, of my activism, I wasn't granted this permission. So my two sons never met each other. I cannot take Daniel Hamza, my second son, I cannot take him with me to Saudi. He's not recognized by my son. I'm still under the Saudi law. I'm still divorced.
Until five years married. And my first son, Abdullah, he cannot visit me. He cannot leave the country. When can he leave the country? He leaves the country with his father, but he cannot leave the country with me. At what age, though, is he independent? Oh, my God, 21st. So you have to wait till he's 21. So yes. you travel hopefully, uh, hopefully, hopefully, when he's teenager, he can speak up. So, he can speak up for himself, and he and he requires and demands uh, the right to visit his mother. How many times have you been in prison? Um, no, just one time. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes they write that I've been multiple times. No, it's just one time. The first time I was uh, in detention, they arrested me and they released me. And the second time, I was sent to prison for f driving while female. <laughs> Is that an, a, an actual term they use yes. in Saudi Arabia? Yes, it was in my paper, uh, driving while female. What do, they, what do they mean by that? <laughs> it means that it's a woman driving a car. As but simple I mean, as that. Why is that a big deal? Uh, they will come and, and, and really argue that it's a society issue. Women can drive. The society don't want them to drive. But when I go out and drive, the society doesn't stop me. I drove, there were other cars there, none of them stopped me. The one who stops me are the authorities. Uh, we tell them there is no law that prevents me from driving. The traffic status code doesn't specify the gender of the, the driver license uh, holder, but they insist that um, we cannot issue you a driver license, even if you go and apply for a driver license. And they say it's the custom, it's urf. It's, it's, um, it's complicated in Saudi Arabia. I always think it's a political issue. It has nothing to do with the society or religion. It's a political uh, decision to allow women to drive or not. What year did you do the famous video? 2012. So we're talking five years uh, ago. Sorry, 2011. Yeah. Sorry. Six years ago. Yes, six years ago. I want to show, begin to show it, then I'll ask you to explain it. Okay. But here you are behind the wheel in Saudi Arabia. What town are you in? I was in Al Khubar city. It's 10 minutes from where I used to live in Aramco. In Aramco? Yes. Okay, let's roll it. بروفيسورة في الجامعة وما تعرف تسوق لبلغ الأمية هذه في البلد على الأقل إنه الوحدة Explain what we're watching uh, A woman driving This is what you're watching Who's the, shooting the video? Uh, it was my uh, my amazing and inspiring activist friend Wajih Al-Huader which is uh, ironically I never met her I met her because of this movement And what impact did this video have? When we posted this on YouTube, it, got, it was trending. It was number one trending on YouTube, not only in Saudi Arabia, around the world. Because of the Saudis, they made it trending, and everyone was like watching what's going on with this video. I got 700,000 views because, uh, uh, because of this video. I made sure when we were taken, when we were uh, shooting the video, I made sure to show the, this is, for example, a Rashid Mall, landmarks in the city Khobar, because they kept saying, no, women cannot drive outside. It's, it's not... It's never going to happen, and we proved no, it can happen. What led up to your decision to do this? Um, so, the, in 2011, we had the Arab Spring going on. Everyone have, wants to bring social change. We have a lot of frustrations with corruption, with unjust laws. One of the unjust laws we have in Saudi Arabia is the ban on women driving. I was in the state in 2009. 
at the you interstate. You were here in the United States. Yes, in New Hampshire, the live free or die uh, state. I got, at the age of 30, I got my, my first driver's license. When I went back to Saudi Arabia, I was paying, I bought my car in 2007, and it was the year 2011, this one, almost four years later. I finished paying the, the car loan. I cannot drive it. I have a driver license. I cannot drive it. I almost got kidnapped walking in the street looking for a taxi because it was late at night and I couldn't find a driver to take me back home. That lit all this frustration with all these years that in a, I live in a country where there are no public transportation, where there are no uh, pedestrian city that I can walk, and a woman to leave the house, to do anything in her life, she needs a car. And to function or to drive this car, to, she needs a man. So the movement uh, was uh, June 17, which is coming in two days, in three days actually. Uh, and um, this movement is simple. We said on June 17, we will go out and drive because we want to normalize women driving. That You never see women driving in the street in a huge country the size of three Texas. You can put three Texas inside Saudi Arabia and women can't drive. We wanted to change this by this movement and the movement is going on. It never stopped. We're still campaigning for the right to drive. For us, the right to drive is more act of civil disobedience because women is not supposed to drive. We show that we are able, we are capable of driving our own life and being in the driver's seat of our own destiny by doing this act of civil disobedience. But you say that when people saw you in a car over there, they would yell things like whore and prostitute and all kinds of nasty things. The men would do this. Uh, actually, that was when I was walking alone in the street at 9 uh, p.m. and I, my face was uncovered. That's when I got the harassment. When I drove the car with Wajiha, no one talked to us. They were looking at us. They couldn't believe there are women driving. And they would just talk to his wife or talk to the people around them. And they would let us go. Why do the men care so much about women being covered? In Saudi Arabia? I think it's just men. It's a global issue when it comes to the control over the woman body. It's a battlefield for men. You have to dress up a certain way or you have to cover up because your body doesn't belong to you. Your body belongs to the man who owns you or the man or the men, I would say, how they want to look at women. It's, this is what bothers me a lot. How nasty were people to you when you were uncovered? Really nasty, especially in my hometown, Mecca. It was so difficult for me sometimes. I would just have to throw the, the, my headscarf on my face because they would not uh, approve women walking without, uncovering her, without, without covering her face. Things are changing now. I can go freely now uh, without my face being covered. Especially the young generation are helping, uh, stopping the people questioning your belief for being un for uncovering your face. Explain this. This is some video from the PBS program Frontline. You yes. probably have seen it. Yes. The voice of Will Lyman. But this is the these are the religious police. We'll, we'll see this, and then I want you to explain what who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. Okay. Yasser films the men who enforce the country's Islamic laws, the Saudi religious police. Dressed in traditional Islamic clothing, they patrol the streets and shopping malls. Their official title is the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. Activists have been filming and sharing videos to expose their practices. 
and to show ordinary Saudis standing up to them. They force women to cover themselves and drive people out of cafes to go and pray. These rules are based on a strict form of Sunni Islam known as Wahhabism. It is the religion on which Saudi Arabia was founded. Who are the religious police? Oh, who are the religious police? Who picks them? The government picks them. It's, uh, it's, has, uh, it's as powerful as a ministry, the head of the religious police. We call them Haya. And uh, it used to be this way. It's changed now, thankfully. I wrote a piece about it in New York Times called Brain in the Religious Police, what I call to really cripple the absolute power they're giving uh, when they walk in the street, um, being able to arrest people for uh, reasons they don't understand because they don't have a list of sins that they will uh, check the adherence to uh, following this, uh, these, I would say, laws or, uh, or the sins they have to check that no one is committing. They didn't have that. It's very subjective. So they would go on the street, out of the blue, you're sitting talking to your friend in the, in the, let's say, in a cafe. He would come and attack you and say, your eyes, you're putting so much makeup if you're uncovered now. Uh, he could, um, I remember my brother was once, uh, he, he, it was very crowded place. They were waiting in the mall and he just put his hand around his wife. They arrested him for doing that. Why do you show public, uh, signs of public affection in public? And he said, she's my wife. I'm just protecting her from the, the, the people around us. He was arrested. And he was interrogated. For, he was locked. So they used to do these things. They chased two, two boys in their car. They played the music loud on the national day. They chased them. They pushed them over. Uh, they forced them to be uh, pushed over a bridge. The both brothers died on the national day for listening to music. On their, uh, on their car. Things changed now. So last year, uh, I think it was last year, when they had to uh, take the power of arrest from them. So they have to call the police if they say something that is un-Islamic. Um, the religious police been always a problem in the society because you don't feel a normal life there. You always feel you've been watched. Your morals are always questioned and it's always subjective on the mood of the religious man, this religious policeman member, and where he would insult you, call you names, even beat you without facing any consequences. Go to your prison experience. Yes. Who arrested you and why? In prison? No, when, when they originally arrested you and then put you in prison. Who, yes. who did that? Uh, so I was arrested the first time. Uh, on purpose because I wanted to pass by a police car and get arrested the second time I drove. I was with my brother. I proved the point by when I was in the traffic police station, I proved the point that I did not break a law. I broke custom or and they're not allowed to arrest me. So, and I said, I'm going out again and driving. The same day at 2 a.m., they sent the secret police to my house in a Ramka compound because the police cannot go inside the compound. They had to send the secret police, and I was arrested and sent to jail with not, without a trial the same night. What year? 2011? 2011, okay. in May, yes. Where were you? 
I was in my house in Aramco. Where did you go to prison? In the mom uh, woman prison. And the mom is where? It's like 15 minutes from Bahrain, where I used to live. And, it, and they picked you up at 2 a.m. in the yes. morning? Yes, 2 a.m. in the morning. And how long was it before you were in a cell? Oh, my God, it was right away. So I, they came at 2. I didn't leave with them until 4 a.m. And from 4 a.m. around around 2 p.m., I was in jail. I was in the women's jail. And how did they treat you between the time they picked you up and the time they put you in a jail cell? Um, so they have this ways of interrogation. So the first one, he's just like, everything is fine. We're just having some questions. Sorry to bring you this early. They ask the questions. The guy disappears, and then things change. They do another interrogation, but this one, they take your phone. They take away your phone. They, they took my brother away. They took my bag, and they brought a woman, a prison guard woman, sitting next to me while they're doing the same interrogation, the same questions. Um, I was stripped search. When uh, I arrived to the prison, and um, by a woman, by a woman, and they didn't explain to me why I was there. I said, "Can I talk to my family? Can I talk to my? To, can I find a lawyer?" And they refused to do that. I had to uh, plea and insist because once I, I'm in jail, I don't know. Who, would people know that I'm in the prison? And for what? For what was the crime? No one explained to me. It was just interrogation. I had, I had, I managed to get a call my sister-in-law, and when I called her, I said, Ahmed was the one from my group managing uh, Twitter, and I said, tell Ahmed to tweet about it. She said, what's his tweet? I said, just tell Ahmed he knows, and he did tweet about it, that I was arrested and sent to a woman prison. So there are men that are on the side of women wanting to be more open. Oh my God, of course, my brother was one of them. He was with me when uh, I drove the second time. My dad, he's the one who got me out of jail when he went to talk to the king. But you tell us a lot in your book that your dad was mad at you a lot. Things changed. So I changed growing up from innocent person to radical Muslim to more moderate Muslim and more open and now to an activist. And your family lived in poverty? Yes, we did it. But once you get a job, once you work, and all of us got jobs, the three kids, it's much easier to move out of poverty. So there is a way of po out of poverty in Saudi Arabia because if the education is free, and once you get a good job, you can move out of poverty. And most of my generation, or at least the city where I lived, which is a poor city, it's not a rich city, um, mostly the, the, my generation, they picked up their family. They moved their family out of poverty. Um, so um, to go back, what was the question that we started with? We went to poverty. You're, you're in, well, you're in, talking about your parents living in, you well, living in poverty. Yes. But, but you, the thing I want to get to in the prison experience Yes. Cockroaches. Oh my God. Ex describe the cockroaches. It's even a title in one of your chapters. Yes, it was prison bars and cockroaches. I hate cockroaches so much. I think all women hate cockroaches. It was just a, um, when I mentioned cockroaches about prison, it just to tell you how filthy it was. So now it was very dehumanizing, it was uh, very um, humiliating, the situation in the prison. And I was deeply shocked at how women strip searched and they go inside the prison uh, crammed in these rooms. That was that How was, many in one cell? I really can't remember, but we had around 12, uh, what do you call it, bunk beds? Bunk beds in each cell, and the cells were really small, but the 12 bunk beds had more women, more than 12 women. Of course, there were women with their kids in jail. They gave birth to these kids in jail. Um, it was it was sad, 
and it was shocking to me the situation there and I brought it up to the attention because most of the women there were non-Saudi non-Saudis uh, yes most of them more than 90% of the women there were non-Saudis they leave the lights on 24 hours they yes they leave the lights 24 hours we didn't have uh, the, the, the bathrooms they didn't have doors they there are no mirrors so you forget how you look like the the no mirrors no, the entire time you're in prison. No, I think for security reasons they don't they don't allow it because they could use it as a weapon. There were children with us. There were kids there in in jail. That was a very um, the whole situation was humiliating. the The first night for me, I slept on the floor because I, they didn't give me anything. They just pushed me in. They I was taken from my home, interrogated. I was pushed in jail. I, no one told me why I was there. No one explained to me where should I sit or go or do anything. It was it was staggering. It was. Did you sleep? It was the with most shocking experience I went through. How much did you? I don't know how to ask this question. Did you sleep with cockroaches? I mean, were they crawling all over you? Over the foot, over your face, over your hands, it's everywhere you're sitting. There are huge cockroaches walking around, and like they they live with you to the way that you get used to seeing them around you. How long were you in that cell? Uh, I was there nine for nine days. There was an international rally that really led to my release in 2011, and I'm very thankful for that. How did you have an international rally? Who, who, who was behind it? I think that video got the attention of the world. When I published that video, it got the attention of Saudi Arabia, and the woman behind that video was sent, because we were a group of women. It wasn't and men, by the way. It wasn't only me, but I was the face. I was made the face because no one wanted to do the video. I was crazy enough to go out and drive with Wajiha. And I became the face, and the world knew this is the girl who drove, she's sent to jail for driving. That brought the attention of the world. My tweet, I talked to the CNN, by the way, before, 2 a.m. when they came to my house, I picked up the phone with the reporter who did an interview a week uh, earlier, and I told her, there are people, I have no clue who they are. I don't know where they're taking me. Please, write about this thing. And she did. She wrote about it. So where do you get, I don't know what you'd call it, the, <laughs> I shouldn't use the word chutzpah, that would be the wrong word, <clears throat> uh, but where do you get the strength to do all this, where did you learn how to do all this? In other words, get the attention of the media, find an agent, write a book, all that. Where, where does this come from? Uh, where'd you learn this? I didn't even know, even know I needed to find an agent. Uh, I knew I wanted to write a book. I think when you know what you want, things just manifest in your life. I wanted to drive because for me driving is a way of emancipating women because I believe that driving is the key to change uh, our situation in Saudi Arabia and to end the male guardianship in Saudi Arabia. This was my belief. And just things show up. And I had no clue that the driving will be the symbol of resistance in Saudi Arabia. We use it as a symbol of resistance. The book agent, I had no clue. How I, I wanted to write a book and I had no clue what to do. So I talked about f f uh, around uh, around me for activists, and one of one friends he said, "You need a book agent," and he introduced me to a book agent. Lynn Nesbitt. Uh, it's Peter Bernstein, my book agent. Oh, Peter Bernstein. Yeah. Yes, yes. I met his dad first, Robert Bernstein, sure. who ran the Human Rights uh, Watch, and the first thing he told me, "You should write a book." His 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 father, my his agent father. father. Robert Bernstein. I met him yesterday, uh, and he said, "You should write a book." Do you, I told him, "You remember you planted that seed." that I should write a book, and I just said, who would read my story, really? 
You gave credit to uh, Lyric yes. Wenick. Yes. Who is she? So um, I had five different collaborators. The your uh, to be successful in writing a book, you need two things are a sense. The first one, finding the right agent who believes in you, who will be always there, which is I was very blessed to have Peter and Amy Bernstein as my agent, and finding the right collaborator. I had very disappointing uh, experiences with the previous collaborators, and I had to sit down and I told Peter, Peter, I'm going to write the book. I'm done with collaborators. I do interviews for six months and they disappear. They don't give me a single word. So because I write, I've been always... I've always wrote. I blog, I wrote diaries, I wrote stories. I wrote it in Arabic, translated it in English by a native speaker. And then Lyric showed up in, uh, as my fifth collaborator after I wrote most of the book, which is the, the good news. She had the transcripts of the interviews before, plus my uh, written, uh, translated uh, chapters. And she did fantastic job. I, wa I didn't have faith really in her at the start because I was mad at all the previous collaborators and I had no clue that she would do. She did a fantastic job. Lyric Wenick is the wife of Jay Wenick. Have you met Jay Wenick? Oh, no, I've never met her husband. Uh, yeah, he's a historian we see here oh. all the time. But the interesting thing, you just the, the name Bernstein, yes. Peter Bernstein, Robert Bernstein, is a Jewish name. Yes. Is there any irony to this that you had interesting, a, right? a Jewish agent... Uh, I have no, so this is, a, my best friends really are the Jewish friends. They're the most successful, they're the one who make things go, make things, and they're most connected. And I have, I'm very proud that I, I have them as my friends. One of them is Daniel Pincus, actually, who introduced me to, someone who introduced me to the, my agent. And Daniel Pincus runs the, the American Jewish uh, Committee in New York. Why do you think that is? I think they've been, because they've been prosecuted in the past, they've been uh, blamed for all the evil in the world, and that made them, uh, in, that made, when you, when you really corner someone, when you prosecute that someone, that make them choose one of two, either become radical, uh, adopt the, the, the faith of faith, I wouldn't call it the ideology of faith, or be become very successful. That's a way, that's a beautiful way of resistance, I think, the Jews did here. Most successful friends that I have are the Jewish friends. I want to ask you about a, a couple more things. One of them, I want to show you some video of your hometown of Mecca. A very rich place, uh, Saudi Arabia, lots and lots of money. Why in the world would Mecca look like this? I'm going to show you how people live here. Yasser brings his hidden camera to a slum on the edge of the holy city of Mecca. People are living in real misery here. Children selling things. Oh my God. Look, it's a dump. Look at the sewage. The way money is spread, it's kept among the ruling family. It's not spread to the people. Only what's left, the crumbs, are spread to the people. That's from Frontline in 2016. The name of the program is Saudi Arabia Uncovered. 
Explain agree that. and disagree. Okay. We get a lot of benefits for free. Uh, by the way, I disagree with getting benefits for free. I want to pay taxes and I want to get these benefits because I'm paying the taxes. I don't want any giveaway from anyone. I agree that we have over 66 slums in the holy city of Mecca. I lived on the skirt of one of these slums. And we have, uh, because of the faith, a lot of Muslims come from very poor countries to Mecca and they stay, illegal immigrants. And most of these illegal immigrants, when they stay illegally, they build their houses in the mountains illegally and their kids don't go to schools. And that ends up in creating all these enclaves of illegal immigrants, a lot of crime, a lot of poverty there. But also the, the Meccans, the, like me, my, my, I'm Sharif, I'm from the original people of Mecca, from Ibrahim time. The Meccans them, themselves too. We never had a park, for example. We didn't have infrastructure in my city. And Mecca makes so much money out of, of the religious tourism, the Umrah and the Hajj. And this money doesn't go to Mecca, doesn't go to build infrastructure in the city, to make it clean, to make it livable by its own people. People are too afraid to speak up against this because in a, in a, in a country which is an absolute monarchy, speaking up about the distribution of wealth, about the corruption, about, could get you in jail, could get you arrested, could get you in so much trouble. So here's the second question that ties into this. A country that is basically a religious state. Yes. How have you kept your faith? Yes. When you have people that are leading this country, a religious state, that have done all these things that you've just explained to us. Yes. How I kept my faith? Yeah. My faith has nothing to do with them because I know whatever they promote is not the real faith. It's their version of the faith, the, the, the ideology of hate that we are fighting back. I had my own faith without, without needing them because I come from my grandfather is Prophet Muhammad himself. We had the real faith and it was just used in a political way to gain political power. That's the thing I'm, I'm against. When you come to this realization that your religion is being used, actually abused and misused, you become angry really and you try to go back to the true Islam that is calling for peace and coexistence. Doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter your tongue, doesn't matter even your religion. I respect you. I respect your religion. I respect your faith. As long as, as we live in peace. Am I, an, am I an infidel? No, you're not an infidel. So, um, according to the Salafi Wahhabi, anyone who doesn't believe in their way or their interpretation of Islam is an infidel. That includes other Muslim faiths, by the way, the Shia, the Ismaili, the Sufi. That's their version of Islam. I believe we are all human. Doesn't matter what you believe in. You're Hindu. You're Buddhist. You're um, religion should be used to call for uh, peace. We need a Dalai Lama in each religion. We need a Dalai Lama in the in the for Islam that calls for for um, for forgiveness, for coexisting for love instead of calling for hate. What do you think the Prophet would think today about the atmosphere in Saudi Arabia? He would be very angry. Why? Because it's not the true Islam. It's not what he called for. Calling for hate, this has nothing to do with Islam. It's un-Islamic to call for the hate of the other. He had the Jews living in Medina. He, had the, he, had the, he married a, a, a Kiptic who's Christian.
um, what's happening today is using Islam to gain political power or whatever. For me, that's unholy. For me, that's something that really makes me angry. Do you have any idea what the leadership in Saudi Arabia or even in the Muslim countries thinks of this book? They haven't read it yet. But finally, after years of um, being indoctrinated, the government is realizing and is acknowledging they made a mistake. The, the schools now, the, all the religious uh, books that we were studying, it been changed. It been uh, they removed the parts about the hate for the infidels. They removed these parts, so they're acknowledging that after it backfired, after our own sons and daughters backfired, when you have terrorist attack, when we suffered more terrorist attacks than in other part, uh, than more than in Europe, for example, we have people going to mosques and bombing these mosques. Other Muslims on Friday, Friday is the holiest day for us in, in, in the week. They realized there is a mistake. And now there is a lot of things happening to, um, I would say, rebel that those ideas, but uh, the problem is not in here really. The problem is when you did so much, so much uh, wrong things in the past, how do you go and undo them? When you have the same ideology being taught in, in, in for uh, people who come for scholarship, study in Saudi Arabia, and then they go back home with that ideology, how are you going to undo this? This is why you have radical Islam being on the rise in very peaceful countries like Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim countries in the, country in the world. How do you undo this? Uh, that's the, the, the important question today for the Saudi government, because they have a big responsibility for spreading the ideology of love and coexisting as it was before when they spread the ideology of hate. Our guest lives in Australia right now married to her second husband as, <laughs> as a child who's how old is the, the young child uh, Daniel Hamza will turn three next month three years old and the name of this book is called Daring to Drive Manal Sharif thank you very much for joining us thank you for free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. 